This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. I think we have today the privilege to have in the Asade Barcelona. For me, one of the separating my friendship, because I won't forget it is one of my best friends, but uh, one of the most interesting uh, personalities of his generation. He's somebody who has been a scholar, continues to be a scholar. He studied in Harvard, the BA, and Yale Law School. And then he had also a life uh, very active in politics. He had two positions for me key in the United States politics. One, he was the Deputy National Security Advisor of President uh, Clinton. And then he was the number two of the State Department with Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State. So he has a very, very deep experience of what is the foreign policy of the United States in a period of time which is very important because the Clinton period of time was the transition from the end of the Cold War into the New World and what, uh, in the situation that we are today, which we really don't know really where we are. That is our problem. Now, uh, we are going to have a, a conversation, then we will open for the public if you want to contribute also questions. Let me, let me start by, 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 by asking uh, uh, Jim. Um, something very, very simple. For the first time after the crisis of 2008, we have a synchronization of growth in the world. The microscopic growth of the global economy is going up, and it's going up practically in a synchronized manner by all the players, all the important players. And at the same time, we have a situation in international politics which is just the opposite. We don't have any synchronization of our actions. We seems to be a fragmentation of the political life, global political life. We have President Trump. We have President Putin, who is going to be elected uh, this month. And we have seen uh, the presence of China also uh, producing a change which is very formidable. We are going to have a president in China which may stay in power as long as he wants. Now, how do we get out of this situation? We have this uh, good, uh, good situation as far as the economy is concerned globally, and we have at the same time a fragmentation of the political life globally. What does it, what, the, what is to you all this? How do you analyze this? What may happen? Uh, what should we do? What, uh, because really in a very complicated situation and to understand this and how to, to move it forward. I, I think you put your finger on, first of all, thank you. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure uh, to be at Asade and uh, to be in Barcelona at such an interesting time in your own political life here. Um, you know, I think you put your finger on really the great crisis of globalization that we're facing right now is that there was a, there was a deep conviction uh, born out of Keynesian economics and, and sort of the, this, the sense that globalization was going to create global wealth 
that a rising tide would lift all boats and this would lead to better lives for everybody and there would be uh, a sense in which everybody would benefit from uh, technology, from integration, from interdependence and the like. But the reality has been very different. And so you have at the macro level in terms of growth of economies, uh, you know, pretty sustained, as you say, across the board growth, but no sense among our publics that they're benefiting from this. If you, if you look at the kind of the, the, the really powerful barometers of public opinion in the United States, the most powerful one is when people are asked, do you think the country's going in the right direction or the wrong direction? The wrong direction numbers are just off the charts. And they, notwithstanding the fact that the GDP growth is good, that, you know, that unemployment is pretty low uh, and the like, um, that there's no sense in the general public that things are going well or going in the right direction, either in the short term or even more importantly in the long term. So people are not only pessimistic about where we are now, but they're even more pessimistic about where we're going to be. And you know, you're here in a university, I teach in a university. I will tell you, my students are deeply pessimistic, right? They, they don't have optimism about their future, about their economic <laughs> prospects, about their social prospects. And so there's no sense in which these, these macro phenomena are translating into quality of life. And, and it's, it's not only just in the narrow economic sense of wages and incomes, but also quality of life issues. We, have, we were talking about this before, the great opioid crisis you know, in the United States, the problem of, of not you know, street drugs, but drugs now affecting broad sections of our public, which reflect a sense of lack of optimism, lack of sense of, of, of self-worth. And, and, and this is a deep problem that, 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 that we have not succeeded as, as a political class in translating to the public's a sense that the direction and the policies are benefiting them. And that's why you see the populism. That's why you see this revolt against the establishment. There are lots of phenomena that are behind President Trump's election, for example. But the, the single most important one, from my point of view, is just a rejection of the political class that have gotten us where they are, Republicans and Democrats. And Trump is a neither. And he was successful because he was a neither. The people are just walking away from the idea that the political class is going to produce for them. And so that's why I think it's, it's important, obviously, that we have global recovery and that we recover from the recession. But unless we find kind of that transmission mechanism that takes those macro improvements and translates them into quality of life and perceptions of quality of life for our publics, uh, it's not going to matter that much. Um, it's certainly the inequality issues, the, the, the question of, of, of what does this mean for the average person uh, is so fundamental to sustaining support for all the kind of policies that we need to have continued global growth, global integration. Yeah, but that is true. But uh, what is the mechanism to do? I mean, the global economy has produced uh, fantastic achievements, getting millions of people from poverty, uh, which is good. But at the same time, uh, we have created this uh, lack of, of, of symmetry in our own societies in the developed world. But uh, how would be the mechanism uh, to make uh, the global benefits, the global goods, uh, the globalization, and produce benefits also in the countries uh, that you, we belong to in the, in the Western world, let's put it that way? I mean, part of the problem is, is not only understanding what's causing this, but understanding the mechanisms that can produce it. And there are things that government and public policy can do. We can have improved social safety nets. We can have better health care and the like. 
But a big problem, you know, I live in upstate New York, and upstate New York is is kind of one of the victims of globalization. We used to have a very uh, vibrant uh, manufacturing industrial uh, economy, and it's been devastated. Right? We have very high levels of unemployment, and and it, it, what's happened is not just overall incomes, because you can always supplement incomes. You can have negative taxes, you can have guaranteed incomes. There are lots of kind of formal tools to help people protect their, their incomes. But it's, it's a sense of self-worth. It's a sense of value. It's a sense of things that, that, that your life is meaningful that many segments of our population have lost. And that's a bigger challenge, because government's not really good at you know, trying to help people deal with that. These are social and societal issues about how do you make people feel valued in their lives. And problems with the, the part of the problem with globalization and the gig economy and informal work and stuff like that is all the mechanisms that used to create value for people in their lives are being eroded. It's the whole, for those of you who study sociology and political science, it's the Robert Putnam bowling alone problem. All the kind of the, the things that provided sense of value, a place of identity to people are being eroded by these systems. And, and there's nothing to replace them. So it's partially a question of, of government policies to protect people from losing their jobs because of trade or, or competition. But part of it is kind of trying to figure out how do we re-knit kind of the social contract, uh, which is a much deeper social phenomenon, and trying to, to find the kind of the social capital that replaces the church, you know, the community, all the things that for a long time were as important as government policies. And that's, you know, needs to happen both inside public policy but also in communities themselves and trying to find ways to do it. And that's a much bigger challenge because you can't just kind of do that, you know, by enacting a piece of legislation. Okay. But the, the, the new social contract that you described, I am very fond of that idea. It has to have a component which is global, and it has to have a component which is local. And uh, which is very difficult to say what is the what is the part which is what globally can how the global can solve the problem of on Syracuse or in Barcelona, and how the, the local can be also beneficial to cooperate in the production of uh, global goods, because we have to be creating global goods for the way, and at the same time benefit our own private life in the developed, in the developed world. How do you do that? Well, I think on the, on the global level, part of it is that, um, I thought it's a little bit unfair, but I'll go along with the, the, the kind of the somewhat caricatured version is to recognize kind of that the Washington consensus version of global economics is inadequate, right? That it is not enough just to let it rip and to open things up. Um, and that, that free markets and everything will just solve all the problems because, because in a Ricardian sense, they will increase you know, the global uh, GDP and therefore people will all benefit. That this is the critique of the Danny Roddicks and people like that who basically say that we, we need to have a political and social component to the global economy that recognizes that one, people have to feel that they have some voice in it, right? That it can't be that the markets decide everything. That people, there, there needs to be a political dimension to the global uh, economy in which people's voices and their concerns can be heard. Second, that we recognize that there are huge externalities to a kind of purely liberal economic model 
that have costs in terms of environment, or in terms of uh, people's lives, in terms of disruption. Um, you know, it's all well and good to say, well, capital is going to flow to the highest area rate of return. But for all the people who are in the lower rates of return area, they're the ones who pay the price. And and we know, and 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 most of the good economics that have been done mm -hmm. on the macroeconomic level in trade over the last 10 years have shown that, that economies don't adapt well. It's not this sort of immediate thing in which because capital flows to higher rates of return that people then move to different sectors and get jobs in other places. And that the dislocation in the United States um, from, for example, China's entry into the WTO is enormous. That the adaptation didn't happen, right? At least for a decade, um, what you saw was rather than having a kind of a sorting out in which low-edge jobs, low-skilled jobs moved abroad, but people were able to move to other places of comparative advantage. They didn't. They, that labor markets are not as uh, flexible as people would like. There are other constraints. Um, people's own skills don't match up. And so, you know, the, I mean, I'm still a believer in trade and the importance of expanding trade, but one should take very seriously the fact that neither of the presidential candidates in the United States supported the TPP, right? It's because nobody in the United States, other than a few people in the, in the business community, saw this as necessarily benefiting them. So we have to have a human dimension to the global economy that takes these things into account, both in terms of process, that is the sense that people have a voice and a vote in helping to shape these things, and to looking at the, the non-narrowly kind of, kind of economic dimensions of the consequences of, of the free flow of capital and, and, and goods. Um, so I think on the, that on the global level is, is just to recognize that you just can't count on you know, the Coase theorem to sort it all out, right? It's, it's not going to work that way, that there needs to be a social dimension to the global economy and a political dimension to the global economy. That, I think, will begin to give people some more confidence that the idea of integration is, will benefit them and that it's not just an abstraction. Then, again, on the local level, you have to build it, the structures on, the, on the, the local level that allow people to, that to cushion them from what are the, even if you do all these things, the inevitable disruptions, because disruption is good. We know you want you know, inefficient enterprises to fail. You want capital to flow to more uh, higher rates of return. So you've got to have the mechanisms that, that insulate individuals from being the ones who pay the price for this necessary and valued Trumpetarian readjustment. Let me, let me move a little bit to another uh, dimension of the conversation, which is uh, security. In the level of security of today, uh, and the fact that we have a competition among the big powers. I mean, we thought that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and all this period of time, the world cooperation will dominate vis-a-vis uh, -vis the world's confrontation. And we see today, with the latest events that have taken place, Russia, China, and the United States, that uh, the world cooperation is going down, and the world uh, confrontation is going up. Confrontation at, at the moment is rhetorical. But uh, it's dangerous enough to have a rhetorical confrontation. How 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 this has happened, and what uh, what can be what can be done in order to to return, if possible, to a world which is much more interconnected. Recognize that, 
and do our policies recognizing that fact, move into the cooperation mode once again. Is that possible? Or we've trespassed or trespassed in a situation whereby elections in Russia, President Trump, uh, statements and the uh, situation in China where uh, Xi Jinping may be a president uh, forever. Uh, so it's a, it's a great and it's, it's a central question I think that mm -hmm. we're facing right now. Uh, for me, you'll let me sound a little academic, I mean I, I, I think part of the problem is we have to look at this through two dimensions and to decide which of the two is driving the problem. Or there are two hypotheses, which is one is that there are really fundamental differences and in adverse interests between the great powers in which you, the, the possibility of cooperation doesn't exist because our interests are just divergent. And we, and, and we want different things, and therefore, if one succeeds, the others will lose. And so these um, vis either China or Russia, if China and Russia are genuinely revisionist powers who want to change the world to an illiberal world in which there's managed economies, and not only in their own countries, but everywhere there's no freedom of expression, that there's government control of the internet and all that stuff, and they want the world to look like that, then we're not going to cooperate because we just don't agree, right? And, 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 and we will want to prevail because we think we're right and the world will be better and they think they're right, just as at least some versions of the Cold War were a view that there were two radically different views that were incommensurable about the world and that one would prevail and the other would, right? And so you could manage that competition, but it was inherently a competition because each side wanted to prevail and wanted the other to lose. If that's the world we live in today, that is if, if China and Russia, others, are genuinely revisionist and want a different world than what we in Western Europe and the United States and Japan want, then no, it's going to be competitive because we just disagree. The other possibility is that it's not that we disagree, but we just mistrust each other. That we that we we fear that if the other becomes more powerful, it will be at our expense, even though that's not inherent in the system. So, you know, if in fact China's goal is to have a greater voice, but it wants a world that looks largely like the world that we have today, you know, when Xi Jinping goes to Davos and says, I'm the big believer in globalization, I want more trade and independence and openness, then it's a much more manageable problem because if we can convince each other, we can build some trust and confidence around the idea that a more powerful China is not a threat to the United States and that all China wants is a greater voice but not a different world and that the reason Putin is, is so diffident is not because he wants to change the world but he just feels that Russia is not getting respect. You can manage that. You can find ways for those of us who've been the dominant powers, the United States, Western Europe, to accommodate a voice for those countries because we don't have a lot to lose. They get a voice, but their voice is not going to be a voice that's going to propose something that's bad for us. So we, we need to understand better whether the reason we're facing competition is because of this fundamental differences in, in the, the view about what the world should look like, or is it just because we are discomforted by the idea of having new voices in the system and it's easier if you get to run it yourself. I can't answer that question. I don't think we know yet. But I think, and I think, frankly, the responsibility is as much on these rising and challenging powers as us for them to give us some reason to believe that they want a bigger voice, but they're not fundamentally challenging things that we think are central to our own well-being. Um, you know, if if we could believe what Xi Jinping said at Davos, um, 
I think people would be more relaxed and there'd be ways to manage China's rise. On the other hand, when we see things like the, the repression in China, the, the stilling of voices, the control of the internet, the, the political president for life thing, that doesn't give us what I call reassurance in books that I've written um, that, that China doesn't want a kind of revisionist view of the world and, and, and which would be very problematic for us. So the, I think that that is going to be the issue confronting us over the coming years is, is this challenge from Russia, China, others a deeply revisionist one or is this one simply about uh, a more equal uh, distribution of power in the, in the international system? We could live, I think, with the latter. We cannot live with the former. And now I think the question will be, are we creating a problem where one need not exist because we mistrust each other? Or is this just a real problem that's going to have to be sorted out and one vision of the world or the other will have to prevail? Yes, but we, particularly the United States, I mean, it appears maybe we have created some problems, but the language, the rhetoric, Suppose that there's a rhetoric of President Trump saying to North Korea, we will blow you out to the world. And saying to China that uh, I will put you sanctions if, uh, with uh, panels of, uh, of uh, solar energy. This language that you are being produced from the United States, the language that comes from the United States is not a language of cooperation at this point in time. For me, it's a, it's a language that goes more into the direction of uh, confrontation. Right. It is not true for Obama, but it's true today. Right. And that, uh, I mean, imagine that you are a Chinese, imagine you are Russian. Um, it's a very uncomfortable also to have the United States using the language which is confrontation. But, but you have to understand that, that Trump believes, if, if my two worlds, or my two hypotheses, that we are in a pure competition, and therefore we have to, we have to win and they have to lose. I mean, his, he's answered the question that I raised, which is, is it possible for us both to win? His view is no. You can read it in their own writings, the op-ed that Gary Cohn wrote with McMaster, the National Security Strategy Report, Trump's speech to the UN. He, he has, his conclusion is, that the world is a fundamental competition, that the nature of the international system is competition in which some people win and other people lose. And therefore, if, if, if somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, we're going to be the winners, right? So he, he does not believe in He doesn't think that states benefit from cooperation or seek cooperation. He thinks they seek to prevail. And he's, he said, this has been a terrible mistake. And by the way, you know, I, I read this to your class. It's not just Obama he's criticizing. In their national security strategy that they issued last month, they said the mistake of the last two decades has been to assume that other states want to cooperate and work together. And they say that has proven to be false. That the world, they believe in Hobbes, that the world is a war of all against all, and that therefore each country has to fight as hard as it can to prevail. That's their diagnosis of the world. So for them, cooperation is as a chump's game. It's in which you forego benefits and the other guy grabs them from you. So that's their assessment. Um, it was not Obama's assessment. I don't think it was George Bush's assessment. But that is the, the perspective that Trump is now bringing to the presidency, which is that the world is inherently competitive, that, that is fu fundamentally characterized 
by competition and not by cooperation. And therefore, e and each country is driven by that. And we shouldn't fool ourselves. He said, China's trying to get it, and they should. I mean, he was not critical of it. He stood up before the UN. He said, I'm for America first, just like you, all your countries are for your country first. And let's just accept that, and let's compete. And you know, we'll obviously try to limit the, the, the externalities of that competition. But let's not kid ourselves. It's all about competition. So it's, it's a different world from the world that you and I believed in, what the liberal international order, Wilsonian views were, that, that people could cooperate and could mutually benefit from cooperation. He, they just don't buy it. Um, but right, so you're going to ask me the next question, which is, do, do Americans all buy it? And that, that I'm not sure, right? Which is, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that this is necessary, just because Trump won the election, that this is the dominant American view. I, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic to say that the outcome of the election reflects a fundamental change in the American attitude here. Um, I think there is still strong support for the idea that cooperation is possible, indeed that cooperation is necessary to deal with many of the big problems. I think the country is divided but it is certainly not categorically embraced the Trumpian view of this war of all against all. Let me ask you, what do you think about the role? Because at least this description, the only power quotation marks in the world seems to be continue believing in cooperation is the European Union. And uh, so the responsibility of the European Union at this moment in time, when you have, uh, as you have described, the United States, which doesn't want to, doesn't believe in cooperation, uh, Russia, which doesn't believe in cooperation, they said it, China, that uh, does believe in cooperation. It hasn't said they don't believe in cooperation, but the, the steps that are taken go in that direction, probably. Now, the European Union has a role to play very important nowadays because it's the only unity that uh, is really still believes on the classical belief that we had. And we are not going to be uh, competing in a, in a sense. We're not going to do competing in a military sense. So um, for an American like you, educated like you, that we have lived with me all these moments of the European Union and NATO cooperating, what would you, what do you recommend? What would you see you are thinking of your recommendation for the European unions today uh, in order to make uh, this uh, global system a little bit uh, better and recuperate what we have lost? Because look, I mean, if you look at the 21st century, we are 18 years in the 21st century only, which is very little. We started the 21st century with two or three elements which are very important to remember. September 11, which is terrorism, WTO, China entered the WTO in the first year of the, of the century. century. And, um, and from the biological point of view, we, in this century, we can read the genome, the human genome, for the first time. Now, today, um, we have, uh, but that created a, a, a sense of cooperation. Putin said, I am a New Yorker, uh, China entered happily in the, in the WTO, etc. How we have broken 
that beginning of the 21st century, that look a century of cooperation, how we, where do we allow that to, to, to get involved? I mean, what I, do you think it's this? I have some moments in which I see the beginning of, the, for instance, the, the invasion of Iraq, that everybody thinks there was a mistake. I mean, everybody recognized that it was not a good moment of cooperation. But is that enough, I think? Is that enough? Uh, what, what has happened deeper in the global structure? We have an international crisis in the GA, I mean, in the economic, <laughs> 2008 was a dramatic moment. But uh, what was the moment in which you think that the belief to, to, to go back in cooperation? I mean, I think it goes back to some of the broader sort of the, the, the as globalization deepened and sped up, all the, the downsides became more dramatic. But I, I want to talk to your first point, which is about the role of the EU, because I do think, and I, I, I say this with sorrow in my heart, that the, the internal problems of the EU have had a very negative impact on convincing people that, that this integration, this cooperative model can work. Because, you know, you have the voices in the United States who basically said, see, it can be done. States can put this, this competition behind after all France and Germany war three times, and, and now they're cooperating. And now they look, they look at Brexit, they look at and all this, and they, and they say, you know something, even in Europe, it doesn't work. And this proves that actually states are nationalists, they're after their own gains, that they aren't prepared to cooperate, that they don't benefit from this, and that this was a fleeting false moment uh, with the single act and the, you know, the European integration that actually isn't sustainable, that the reality is that the, that the EU is falling apart and falling back into the same patterns that the broader global system. So, frankly, if Europe can't demonstrate that this integrationist project can work, uh, and that while states can return, countries as nations can retain a certain degree of identity, that they're going to submerge national goals and aspirations into this broader cooperative structure, it's hard to be compelling to the rest of the world. So the travails of the EU over the last two decades, I think, have had a very negative spillover effect in terms of making the case that we're in this kind of post-competition Kantian world uh, and, and so people, I mean, the biggest thing the EU could do is to show that it can overcome these internal disagreements and find a way to re-energize the integrationist project within Europe. Because if it can't work in a relatively culturally homogeneous, relatively economically homogeneous setting like Western Europe, <laughs> Western and Central Europe, how is it possibly going to work in a world of wildly diverse cultures, wildly di diverse economies and the like? So I think that's... I mean, there's obviously a role, I don't mean to downplay the role of the EU on the world stage, but I believe the single most important thing to do is if the EU can get its own act together and demonstrate that this project is not a fleeting fantasy um, and a kind of a short-term product of the end mm -hmm. of World War II and the Cold War, um, then people are going to say, you know, which is what the Trump argument is, is that this has all turned out to be a fantasy and that the world is just competitive. And look what's happening in Europe. They're all going back to nationalism. And that's just, we just got to get used to this and build our strategy around. But uh, Jim, we, we do agree that we have uh, global problems. There's no question that we have global problems. That we need uh, global solutions. And therefore, we need cooperation. This is a recognizable fact today. Who is going to provide the global goods? Who is going to defend the global goods? 
uh, that has a, requires a cooperation among the different big powers. Big powers, in the, but then beyond the big powers. Now, we, we are doing, if, if, we, if we break that sense of cooperation, again, who is going to provide the, the public goods? Because if you break the agreement, the, the Paris Agreement, for instance, to put an example that we know, this is a very dramatic uh, type of action. And if you put that together with the new conversation about nuclear weapons, which to me is appalling how we are talking about nuclear weapons today, again, not in the, the, the direction of disarmament, but in the, the, in the direction of making a smaller nuclear weapon, which is really... Now, we have public goods that have to be defended, that cannot be defended by one single state. Therefore, we need cooperation. And at the same time, we recognize that it's very difficult to cooperate. That uh, President Bush thinks that uh, the world is Hobbesian, and Hobbes, the, the, the strongest is the one. I mean, this is what uh, bothers me for my life and for my life, <laughs> my future generation. That we have to, 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 to square this circle uh, somehow. We do. And I, and I do think that's the big challenge of our time. But the problem in climate something I've spent a great deal of my career dealing with. And, you know, I was part of the negotiating team in the Clinton administration during the Kyoto negotiations, right? And, and the, the, the most powerful part of that was not the immensely difficult and challenging part of the international negotiations, but then coming back and trying to convince our Congress that we should do this. And the fundamental problem was, uh, and remains the problem, that the United States and Western Europe could have zero emissions tomorrow. We could just decide to shut down, right? And it would have only a marginal impact on carbon concentrations, uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, if China and India and everybody else keeps doing it. So, so this is the collective action problem, which is that we can't, we it can't, we do need, we do require collective action to solve the problems. But unless we get collective action, individual action is not, is is very modest, and. We have no confidence that if we do the right thing, others will do it. And indeed, the Trump argument is you do the right thing and everybody just takes advantage of you, that China will continue to pollute, that we'll be able to use the externalities to produce things cheaper because they don't have to use higher cost, more you know, cleaner uh, energy sources. And so you're a chump. And so yes, we're all going to choke to death, but we'll choke to death anyway. And so we're, in the short term, let's at least keep our jobs. And so we, we do need to find the mechanisms that give people confidence that, that there will be a collective response to these collective uh, requirements. And again, this goes back to how do we have some confidence that we all have the shared goal? Because if we have the shared goal, you can figure out the mechanism. Everybody agrees that we would really benefit from lower carbon emissions and you know, to deal with this challenge. Then you can develop the mechanisms to do it. But we, we need to first establish that there's really a commitment to do it. And so, this is where this reassurance is, which is that, that, that the big polluters, us, China, India, others, have to be able to demonstrate that they aren't going to take advantage of good behavior by others to just get individual benefits. Um, that is the, the challenge, is to create the, the, the context in which this kind of mutual reassurance. And the idea of Paris was that, which is to recognize you couldn't compel countries to reduce their emissions, but that if everybody made commitments and could watch what they were doing, that this would create a virtuous cycle of individual efforts, but being you know, supported by others. Um, that 
are the kind of mechanisms we need to work we, in, in which people will have an incentive to start to play, will have ways of getting off the train if it looks like others are cheating too, right? So that it's not like you're stuck with making all these sacrifices while the others don't. So that, that these are incremental commitments where if some people start to defect, as we say in the IR political science world, that others won't be left holding the bag. Um, and that's, and, and, but it's going to be critical now for others in the Paris Agreement to show that they're not going to get off the, the train just because the U.S. appears to. Because I think that if what happens is that others continue with this, and the United States looks like it's an outlier, it will help those in the United States who want to get back on it because they won't feel like they're being chumps. They'll say, everybody else is playing. They're all, they, they get this, and therefore we have some responsibility to do it too. But it's harder, given the fact that we are threatening to pull out, for others to stay. They're going to say they're going to stay in. But I, it will be critical that others, including obviously Europe, but also China, to say, well, we're, we're not giving this up, and we hope that our good example here will induce the United States to come back in. Because I think I think the United States could be induced to come back in if we see others continuing to, to meet their commitments. But even with Paris, I mean, you can look at the, the differential commitments. I mean, some of those, if you look at some of the, the scoring systems, and we've given China a lot of credit for what they say they're going to do, but actually the Chinese pledges are really no different than business as usual for China. So they haven't been totally compelling about doing their share of dealing with the problem. Okay, let me, let me, let me uh, push you a little bit further on on something that for me is very troublesome, very worrisome, which is the nuclear dossier. I mean, in, in, the, in the Obama administration, at the beginning, I remember very well Obama talking in Prague, a fantastic speech. We, are, we will not live in a world with nuclear weapons eventually. And he got the Nobel Prize and... And now we have a, a national security strategy by the, well, by the United States, by Russia, uh, saying that uh, we are going to have uh, to use nuclear weapons even for a non-nuclear weapons uh, catastrophe, for a non-nuclear attack, or anything like that. Number one. Number two, we are going to have nuclear weapons of a smaller size, so that we can use it for a smaller conflicts. So, this idea that you can have a nuclear uh, use of nuclear weapons for smaller conflicts is, is to me very, very frustrating. Now, how how we have changed on that, practically without realizing that we were moving, because uh, from Prague to the national security strategy, the revision of the of the nuclear position of the United States. And it's practically in between. We thought that nothing was happening, but a lot was happening. How 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 can you explain that change? I think it's a product of this broader phenomenon that we're talking about, which is that if you think that each side in this global competition is trying to get the better of each other that you therefore have to match what they're doing. And if Putin is going to build a new nuclear weapon, then we have to build a new nuclear weapon too, because he will somehow get an advantage by having it. He has a small nuke. He can threaten Europe. And so he can now invade Latvia. And if you try to do something about it, he'll threaten to nuke Berlin or Paris or London or some or Barcelona, right? And so, 
since and he's got the small nuke and you don't, and so he can threaten you, and your only choice is to blow up Moscow, and you'll never do that. And so you need to have a small nuke so you can you can blow up Warsaw if he whatever. I mean that that's the logic. But if it's it's, it's all competition, as opposed to, to saying, now let's step back for a second. These are nuclear weapons. We know what the consequences are. These are not you know, sending an artillery shell or a bullet or even a drone strike. These are weapons of mass destruction. And there's a reason why they're called weapons of mass destruction. They don't just kill soldiers. They don't just kill advancing armies. They are, they are a, a category which is radically different than what we have thought about when we think about wars and war fighting. And we just lost sight of that. And we're back to the kind of Herman Kahn thinking about nuclear weapons and the 52 steps of the ladders of escalation um, that has lost sight about why it is that nuclear weapons are of a category that are so different that any use of it other than kind of the ultimate doomsday use is not imaginable. And, and the, the, the translating this into the kind of classic competition, how big is your army, how fast can you mobilize, thinking about this the way war has traditionally been thought about, as opposed to seeing that nuclear weapons are just something of a radically different order of magnitude, just like chemical and biological weapons. Um, we're not going to get rid of war, but there are reasons to understand that certain kinds of weapons are just not within what we have come to understand as the laws of war. That is, the laws of proportionality, the laws of discrimination, all the things that allow us to tolerate war because there are limits to what the weapons can do. Um, and we've just lost sight of that. We've lost, and that was what Obama was focused on, was to say we cannot treat nuclear weapons as just another piece of the arsenal. And if you read the, the Trump nuclear posture review, that's exactly what they do. They just say we're going to integrate them all together. And they talk not only about having new low-yield small nuclear weapons, but integrating the conventional and the nuclear together. So nuclear weapons is just like, it's like a bigger artillery shell rather than a, an or, a categorically different thing. I find it deeply disturbing, uh, and you're right; it has not gotten nearly the attention that I think that it needs. And you know, I think the Russians bear some responsibility themselves yeah. for for moving in this direction after both sides under Obama had start to move well had more before that, but it had moved further away from this. And it's also troubling because the more we do this, the more it looks like North Korea has got a case for having its own nuclear weapons. If we're going to legitimate the use of nuclear weapons as part of a strategy. Why shouldn't Iran or North Korea or others have it? So I, I think it's deeply misguided. It's morally uh, indefensible, and it's not good for the United States. Okay, um, let's open the, the debate to the public who wants to pose any question to any, particular to Jim, which is uh, yes. Let me shorten the. The question, not uh, not read the yeah, text. No, because uh, I had like a point. Uh, ah, I see, I see. So my name is Claudio. Um, I'm working uh, for Inno Energy in the sustainable energy field. So that's a particular interest on sustainability that I have. And um, yeah, I also feel that uh, especially young people are very much pessimistic. So I could very much relate to that. Um, yeah, one, a couple of things. One thing is. Um, I believe that a lot of this uh, disenchantment and pessimism, even though it's going well, as you said, GDP, is probably that it's not the right indicator and that we need to probably stop kind of preaching hedonistic consumerism as a kind of a value of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably then there is this 
dichotomy of where you are as the general population towards where other people are uh, and, and the value they get they have. Um, yeah, and, and, and basically I, I'm, I'm into community and empowering people, so that's what, exactly what I'm trying to tackle. Uh, and I, I was wondering the role of communities as well you see uh, towards that, as well as this uh, general economic paradigm that, uh, that I was referring to. So I think the communities are very important, and I think you know I'm I'm a big fan of the old slogan of you know think globally and act locally because I think that people are able to think at at smaller scales about impact and and it gives people more confidence. It is if you're a young person or anybody else and you think um, and are concerned about global warming, climate change, and things like that, it's a lot easier to imagine that what you do in your community. You could you could change things, right? You can get people to not use plastic bags at the supermarket. You can get you know people to be to be more sensible about uh, how they you know use their energy in their homes than thinking about negotiating a global treaty if you're just an individual citizen. And and although there are issues of scale, there are also a lot that can be achieved just by these local actions. Not only be, because you can aggregate them across local things, but they're actually things that you can make a difference in your communities. So we do need, it, it can't just be top-down, the, the local level. And, and positive actions local will give people more confidence that they can achieve things at the higher level. So, you know, for my students, I teach at a school of public administration and public policy, and so most of them go either into government or NGOs. And what we've seen over the last 20 years is far fewer of them are going into the national government, the U.S. government. And many more going either to local government or to NGOs because they feel it's more rewarding, more fulfilling, more of an impact. And that's good because I do think that it's what keeps hope alive at the times when things are not happening at the national level and gives people some sense that all is not lost. But it's also true that there are limits. I mean, you can't, you, you must do it at the local level, but there's, there needs, each level needs attention and we need to not we, we need to not neglect any of them. And regarding the hedonistic uh, consumerism kind of paradigm? I, you know, I, I mean, there's been, there, again, I mean, first of all, there's been a lot of good work on that, green GDPs and things like that. I mean, I do think that the incomes are important, and one should not underestimate. It's still, if you ask people, there are a lot of indicators of what they want in terms of quality of life, but, but you still need to provide incomes. And so I don't think we, we should lose sight that if you don't grow economies, it, you're, not, you're not likely to be successful. Um, I think that those who, you know, we used to have the old zero growth, Paul Ehrlich things. I don't think that works. I think that there still needs to be economic vitality and growth. But as you say, it isn't the only thing partially because of uh, uh, distributional issues, inequalities and things like that, partially because people do want other things. They want clean drinking water. They want, um, you know, to have safe streets. I mean, there, there are lots of things that, and, and there needs to be attention to it. Interestingly, you see this, you're talking about China, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about China. One of the big changes that have taken place in China is that even in China, the leadership have recognized that growth per se and, and increasing incomes is not going to work. They now talk about the quality of growth and the quality of life, right? And it's not just on pollution, which is obviously a big issue, but more broadly about some of the other things. So I think you're quite right. I think that, and, and I think that that's what trade agreements have to take into account and economic policies have to take into account is, is thoughtful growth, you know, sustainable growth, all these things 
need to be a, a broader category than just thinking about the kind of the narrow indicator of, of higher incomes. Thanks. Okay. Any other question? Uh, <coughs> yes. I'm sorry. Do you, sorry. You and you second. You don't mind. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, I'm. I, so listening to your description of um, the current world, I'm. I'm quite pessimistic. <laughs> as well as you. I mean. <clears throat> you said that your students are pessimistic too. I'm quite pessimistic about the role of state governments um, in providing what Mr. Solana's uh, question, insisting question about who will provide these public goods. I I'm quite pessimistic about state governments doing that job. And then so my question is, what do you think about other kind of actors, about cities, for instance, we are seeing some interesting moves there, city governments who are, you know, creating networks and alliances and trying to do some something on their own, and also civil society movements. What, do you think that the civil society in the developed world will be uh, successful enough to put some pressure on their governments, the state governments? So I, let me talk about civil society first. I think that when we think about civil society, there are two dimensions to the problem. One is civil society is an advocates you know, and creating momentum for this. And I think it's enormously important. We, we can look at the big social changes of the last 30 or 40 years and, and how central civil society has been in pushing those agendas. So I think it's absolutely critical in terms of mobilizing publics in favor of these agendas. Then there's civil society as the provider of public goods. And there, there's a role, but I think it's a limited role. There's only so much the Gates Foundation can do in dealing with global public health. It does a lot of good stuff, right? But if, if governments are not involved in that, I don't think you can ever get to the scale and the comprehensiveness. So good that they're doing it, but if you're going to deal with HIV AIDS or malaria, it can't just be the Gates Foundation and civil society that's doing it. So I, I think in terms of the provision of public goods, and I'm for public-private partnerships, by the way, there's, there, those are very powerful. And sometimes working together, there's more credibility for civil society. They have, it's sometimes easier for them to operate without the political constraints than having the UN or another government do it. So I think public par partnerships in providing public goods are good. But the, the nature of public goods are such that the, I think there has to be a public dimension as well as a private one, even if it's a civil society one. Again, on the states and locals, there's plenty that can be done, but some things, you know, have scale or or externality problems. So, you know, if the issue is dealing with, you know, uh, uh, safe drinking water in a community, the community can do it. If the issue, as we had for many years in the United States, is acid rain because power plants in, in the Midwest were using high sulfur coal and lakes were dying in New England. No. I mean, you know, you're not going to get Cleveland to stop using high sulfur coal to help Boston, right? It's just, I mean, you could do a coast theorem. They could pay off maybe theoretically. But as a practical matter, some problems are hard for communities to go simply because they are, they, they are, they are, ex, they, are they have externalities and they, and so they can't be done at the local level. If you're downstream of a polluter and you don't have jurisdiction over that polluter, there's just not that much you can do unless you can capture that. So I think each, each problem has to be seen distinctively. And there are things that at each level that require different levels of action. The more that can be done locally, clearly the better, because it is easier to organize. It's easier to see how the, the, the benefits relate to the costs at that level. 
but I, I think we need to, to not neglect any of those levels in terms of dealing with these problems. Little. Yes, so my question was not so much whether cities can provide on their own these public goods, but whether they can push the agenda, right? They can become some global actors pushing the agenda for some kind of global governance that will develop the institutions that we need to provide. Yeah, as ad, as again, on the advocacy side, absolutely. I mean, I do think that, that all of these, and that, that, that advocacy is really important, mobilization is really important, and any of these kinds of entities are very important in terms of putting these issues on the agenda, mobilizing attention, getting people to do it. And I, I certainly agree, on, the, on again, on the advocacy side as opposed to the provision side. We have today a very important example of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. I'm Jordi Bacaria, director of think tanks here in Barcelona and editor-in-chief of the Foreign Affairs Latin America, the Spanish version of the Foreign Affairs in Publicity in Mexico. Um, when you talk about globalization, of course, we talk about borders. And in, in Europe, you know very well what means borders. There are different kinds of borders, physical and fiscal and technical borders. And we eliminate since the last uh, century these borders. But when you go into the United States now, and seeing that uh, there are some kind of self-isolation in the United States because, uh, for example, in the, in the uh, Pacific Partnership, uh, who has been enforced and maintaining the, this uh, kind of agreement uh, is uh, the Pacific Alliance, for example, uh, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, and, and Chile. Uh, but the, the, the problem uh, today, perhaps the, the, the key piece, is uh, the situation between Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Because, in, in fact, this uh, kind of provocation of Trump about uh, when, when Trump said to Mexico, you will pay the wall, it's a bit of the contrary, what means the, the, the cooperation. And, and at the same time, they are, ne they are negotiation or renegotiation, the NAFTA, but not going for war. It's going back because uh, putting on the table this negotiation at the same time saying you will pay the, the ball at the same time uh, put tariff on, on steel and aluminum when the first uh, exporter of aluminum to the United States is Canada and the four of steel is Mexico, it's very difficult to understand what kind of globalization we're talking about. I mean, what is the perception in the United States about this situation, because I take in the perception from the South, from Mexico, and perhaps it's different. Thank you. So if, to the, if any of you are interested in trying to understand our president, um, <laughs> he wrote a book, or he had a book ghostwritten with him a number of years ago called The Art of the Deal. And you know, don't read the National Security Strategy Report to understand Trump. Read this book, The Art of the Deal. Because he believes that all relationships are competitive, he sees everything through this lens of the art of the deal. It's like doing real estate deals, which is you have two people. One person wants to buy a property. The other person wants to sell it. They both want to buy and sell the property. But the person who's buying it wants the lowest possible price. The person who sells it wants the highest possible price. And, and it's going to come out somewhere. And somebody's going to get a better deal. And somebody's going to get a worse deal. Right? And his view is that's what it's all about. And so on these trade deals, he's not against trade. He just wants a better deal. And he thinks because of the leverage the United States has, because we're a big economy, big power, we can get a better deal. And if we threaten to walk away, if you've all been to the markets, the bazaar, and somebody wants to sell you a rug, and, you, and, they, and he says it's going to be you know, 25 euros, and you walk away, 
And then maybe he'll come after you and say, all right, 20 euros, right? He is convinced that, if, that only by threatening to walk away and not do the deals can we get a better deal. And at the end of the day, he'll do the deal with Mexico and NAFTA and Canada, but he wants to find out just what's the cheapest price he can get, what's the most he can get. And, so, and he thinks unless you're prepared to walk away and break these deals, you'll, the other guy will get a better deal. And so this is his view about what a negotiation is. He thinks, I, I, I'm saying, I think he thinks this, maybe he doesn't, but I believe it, that it's just like these real estate transactions that he did. And that by, by, only by threatening to walk away from NAFTA can he get Mexico and Canada to make concessions which they wouldn't otherwise do. And then they'll make the concessions and at some point say, okay, that's good enough. I've gotten a good enough deal and I'll keep it. Right? And that's what he said about TPP, right? He said, oh, maybe I'll go back into it if they make more concessions. Korea, the Korea US, maybe I'll go back into it. This is his view about it's a zero-sum game in which it's a negotiation, and unless I'm a tough negotiator, unless I'm prepared to walk away, I'm, I'm not going to do as well as I could do. And I'm going to test what the other guy's bottom line is. He believes that no president up till now has done that. We've been chumps. We've been too nice. We've worried about whether the Mexicans like us. Who cares whether they like us? We want a good deal, right? And then we can like them. Then we'll all get together and we'll go out for a drink to celebrate the deal. So that's his philosophy about the nature of international relations. It's not about having good relationships. And as, again, the IR people say, it's not about repeated reactions. When you do a real estate deal, you don't have to deal. You're done. It's over. Sign the papers. You're done. You don't have to go back and, and see the guy the next day. Whereas most of us who've been diplomats and statesmen know that you can win one deal. But if the other guy feels like they've been swindled, then next time it's not going to be so good. And you have to have repeated reactions. So if it's the United States and Europe on TTIP, Right? Maybe we can get a better deal, but if the European publics are disaffected and feel like they've been, that's going to have long-term consequences. Trump doesn't think about that at all, doesn't believe it. Right? He thinks it's all one-off transactions. And so it doesn't matter if the other guy has hurt feelings or feels like they've been coerced into the deal by the economic pressure of the United States. But I do believe that that's it. So it's not isolation. It's just this idea that he's out to get the best deal for America. And that the way to get this is to use the kind of negotiating tactics that worked for him in business over the years. And people didn't like him, but he got rich. And, and his view is that the same thing can happen in, with the U.S. and international relations. They may not like us for being tough and you know, being impolite and rude, but we're going to get a better deal for the American people, and the American people are going to be glad. And if the other people are on, that's why it's America first. Any other? Yes. I'm sorry, you, you, yeah, okay, we're going to go Hello, I'm Josep Garnau, a uh, student of Global Studies. Um, I, uh, I, first, I believe that the United States should uh, acknowledge that it won't be the first economic superpower you know, of, the, of the world. Uh, and then it will be more necessary than ever a uh, multilateralism in the world to in order to to give governance. But uh, uh, the the fact that um, I don't like Trump because he he's anti-social in international relations terms. He's an anti-social. He's breaking the rules. But I can we can see all all uh, Trump like an opportunity to. To, it's not all bad because it can be like a polymalo that I know how it's called in, in bad, bad, bad guy in bad cop, bad cop, <laughs> <laughs> bad cop. 
um, in order to to make warn warnings in um, to the rest of the international community, especially to China, all this, because um, of course the United States also makes some kind of dumping, but China is he has usually uh, adopt some dumping policies. So maybe it's like only like a, we can see like a parenthesis uh, to to make these kind of warnings to the to to the rest of the world. And so my question is, is, is maybe it's only a parenthesis that can be uh, seen like an opportunity in this year? It's possible. I mean, I, I, you know, and again, I mean, I think that, I mean, if, if you take the discussion we've just had, um, it's, it would suggest that Trump is not fundamentally opposed to the basic order. He just wants a better deal for the United States and, and is behaving badly. Um, in order to get it, because he thinks that's how you get it, right? And if you if you, it's like a child throwing a tantrum, then you at some point you think, well, I maybe if I give them a little something, they'll shut up and be all right, and and then we'll go back to everything being fine. I, it's hard to say, I think, uh, at this point. I mean, I, I, part of it too is that you know the, you raise your first point about sort of the U.S. dominance is really a critical question because it's a it's a real debate in the United States. I mean, there are there's a real debate about whether the U.S. goal should be to try to do everything we can to stay to be the dominant global power, right? There are plenty of people, and it's not just Trump, who think that that should be the U.S. goal. There are other people who think that it shouldn't be the goal, either because it can't be done um, or because it's actually counterproductive. You know, the more we try to dominate, the more people resist it, and the more people don't want to work with you. And so you don't get cooperation if you tell the world, you know, we just, we just want to be the king of the hill. Uh, but there are many Americans who think uh, and this is somewhat similar to Trump's view, is that somebody's going to be the top dog and we might as well be the one. Better that we be the ones than somebody else. That this idea of multipolarity is, is an illusion, that everybody's going to be contending to be the dominant power, and so far better to be the dominant power than the subordinate power. Um, that's a, a big debate in the United States, and we are not very used as a country to kind of happily accept the idea of being one of many or not being the dominant power. Um, we were slow to emerge as the dominant power, but we have been largely since the end of the 19th century and absolutely since the end of World War II. So the experience has been one in which we are used to that. And it will be a hard transition for the United States to, to rethink a strategy that doesn't depend on uh, our dominance. It was somebody else. Hmm? Somebody else? Okay, if nobody else... Uh, uh, sure, we'll do it after. Okay. Uh, recently there was the Mobile World Congress here in, in Barcelona, and uh, I've listened to three main startups in AI, and um, so yeah, you, you may, maybe you, hit, you, you already see the hint, but basically they were saying that uh, they're replacing all these jobs that are apparently very repetitive, that, that don't require humans, and humans, and then they were asked, what's the vision of, of humans for you? where machines are, are going to, to take mostly uh, these repetitive jobs that are a huge chunk of, of the jobs. Um, and they were saying, actually, they would be able to do more creative tasks, more complicated, more challenging tasks. But one thing that arised to me, that was their kind of utopian view, um, one thing that I, I had a, as a fear in, in, in a dystopian future would be that they're mostly people were not educated enough to take on these. Uh, so very few people could be able to educate AI in, in the future. 
and then uh, what do we do? What? How do we see the rest of the population? Then, uh, yeah, what? We'll it's a great question. You know, that I it's not my specialty, but I have a lot of friends who work on issues of of human capital and the workplace and jobs. And you know, I, mean, I think there are two competing thoughts on this. Uh, the optimists say, look, you know, we have been through two major industrial revolutions over the last 300 years. We had the first one, which was the replacement of human and animal power with machines and steam and all that stuff. And the, and the, the first industrial revolution beginning sort of the late 18th century, early 19th century. At the time, people say, oh my God, it's the end of human jobs. You're going to, you know, we're going to we're all destroy The Luddites were you know, smashing the machines because they thought this is going to end human labor. People are going to be destitute. What are they going to do? And it didn't turn out that way. And the Industrial Revolution generated lots of jobs and opportunity in the 19th century. And then we had the second Industrial Revolution beginning of the 20th century, mass production, automation, all these things, Henry Ford. And it was, oh my God, you know, it's hopeless. It's the end of jobs. Everybody's going to be unemployed. You had, the, this is the foundation of socialist movement in, in Western Europe and the United States, Debs in the United States, and the labor unions all saying, this is the end. It's over, right? It's over for workers. And that didn't happen, right? And now the question is this third revolution, which began with the internet and information technology, but especially is now being exacerbated by AI. And so one answer is everybody thought it was all over the first two times. Why will this be any different? Yes, all, certain kinds of jobs will disappear for sure. And you know, AI will be the next version of what Henry Ford did by automating the production lines. But new things will come, and, and, it will, and there'll be plenty of opportunities. It'll be more rewarding, less repetitive, and be great. And then other people say, well, this is completely different. And this time, you're only going to need one worker to turn on the switch, and the machines will do it all. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a pessimist about this. I mean, I, I think that there is a real opportunity for new and creative things to happen and for the human to be necessary. It's not my specialty, so it's just like a, an average citizen's view. But, but, but your point is a critical one, which is that if people, if that optimistic vision is going to be, then we have to prepare the workforce for this. And we have to make it possible for everybody to have the kinds of skills and attitude that allow them to flourish in an environment that will be the uh, technological context in which work takes place in the future. So that's why education is so important. That's uh, why, you know, for me at this latter stages of my career, I, I'm just as happy to be, to be a teacher as uh, a doer. Um, because I think both as individual teachers and thinking about the academic enterprise, we need to think about how do we prepare the next generation, which will have to live with this, to be successful and rewardable in, in this environment in which machines are going to do things that humans used to do. But for me, I just don't, I don't buy the idea that this is inherently different than the two earlier stages where machines undertook or took over fundamentally tasks which were fundamentally human uh, in the generations before that. Okay, there's no other question. Uh, yeah, sorry. My name is Gerard, Gerard Romy. Uh, you spoke at the beginning about the crisis of the values. Huh? I mean, you have big crisis of the value. I think you should spoke a little bit about why this crisis of the value came, especially after the 2008 crisis until today, who paid the price of this crisis. Uh, you, you spoke about the uh, people and government and uh, politicals are very far. Uh, we saw how the relation market and political were all this time. 
Uh, and how to solve this crisis of values is very difficult. Uh, you, I think that uh, Trump try and make uh, a mission. I mean, the mission is American first. No? The Chinese make another mission. We want to do a nice China, a clean China, and technological China, something you can buy. <laughs> Europe make nothing. And the image of Europe is zero. The what is not only solve the, the problem of uh, social inequality, but what is the mission of Europe in the future? That is it will be, how do you see that? So Javier, you can answer that one. <laughs> happily. Ah, happily. I will, I will answer that happily. I mean, I, and with that, I, we close, okay? <laughs> I will do an, uh, answer your question and, and, and say a couple of things about uh, how close it is. Now, um, I am not a naive uh, person, uh, but I, I am not a pessimist. And I have uh, faith on, on human capabilities. And I do believe that the European Union is one of the most, uh, continue to be one of the most important uh, constructions uh, that have been ever been done. Uh, the idea that peacefully a group of countries give away some of their sovereignty peacefully to share it with others and create something better. And for me, something so beautiful that uh, even if it takes a long time to get it done, is a fascinating endeavor. And I will continue fighting for that. Let me put it in a physical manner. I am, in my first incarnation, I was a very good professor of theoretical physics. Um, and I believe very well what is an atom and what is a molecule. And I know that an atom alone is very little important. When an atom mixed with another atom and produce a molecule, the whole thing begins to be a very active element for the collective life. Now, I don't see why we cannot apply this to the global system. At the end of the day, we have 130 elements of the system, the periodic system of the elements which is just about the number of countries which are in, in the United Nations. Now, if we were to think that by cooperating, we, believe, we get something better, and I think we do, uh, I am betting for that cooperation. And uh, I think we are living at the very moment today in the European Union, very important, with many problems. We have problems in Brexit, and we have problems on the East Power. We have a problem with Poland, we have a problem with Czech Republic, with Hungary, which do not understand, or we think that they don't understand what the European Union is today. But I think that these are problems which can be uh, absorbed in that uh, idea that I have. And I think that the, the moment in which uh, the Germans have agreed with the coalition of this time, and at the same time, we have in France a situation like the Macron situation. And we have a better relationship than ever we have seen between France and Germany. And if we have Spain was to play, I think we have an opportunity, a very serious opportunity, and this 
complicated mess we have been describing of all this hour we've been together to really be an element of good. And um, I believe on that, and I may fail, or we may fail, but I, I think it's worth to keep on working on that direction. And with that, uh, I, I say what I have to say about Europe. I believe in Europe. I'm not a naive. I don't think it's stupid. I don't think it's a... But I, I, I believe in Europe because I've seen that it still has inside the capability to do that. Now, the second thing I would like to say, you can get out of this conversation very pessimistic, saying that at the end we are back in the, in the jungle. Which we have described here is that the, the, the countries like to behave like animals in the jungle. And I try to think that this is not the only outcome, the only possibility. I think that when in the world has been leaders, when the history of the world has been people that believe more than what the leaders of today believe, and when they had a, a human weight much bigger than the one they have today, things have been done. And things have been done immensely well. Imagine that instead of having the United States today, President Trump, we had Roosevelt. Imagine for a moment. We will be in a completely different situation. A completely different situation with a grave problem because we have the China and we have India and we have emerging powers that are difficult to. But if you do it from a simplistic attitude, if you look at complex problems like having a China which is economically as big as the United States, but militarily it's not. How do you handle these things intelligently with much more common sense? We had a beautiful opportunity to create a world which is balanced. If we were in the right place and the right people. So I think it is not impossible to have the right people and the right places. The right place and the right people. And that's what moved me to continue devoting my life to politics and to the solution of the, or the problems, of the, the collective problem. Because I think it's possible. And human beings are very important. And therefore, my, my appeal is to, 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 to all of us to try to put the best that we have in order to help in this project. It is a different project. We have a project which is reality today, which is bad. Which is bad. Which we can, don't have the right, the right people in the right place. But it's not necessarily that it's going to be forever. And the question is how and we have to Two elements, our life, in the service of good causes, and our votes, which is what may change. In, in the United States, we have uh, President Trump for X number of votes, X, X, mean almost zero. It, was, uh, it, was, uh, it would have been different, completely different. So, mm. mobilization of people in the right direction is very important. Now, I'm, again, I'm not a preacher, never further away than a preacher, but, uh, but uh, I am a, a, a committed man to, the, to life and to collective life, not only to, to private life, to collective life. And I think it's possible. And uh, the, the, we were talking last night, uh, we are very good friends, so we can talk about just about everything. 
about leadership. This is very important. The, 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 the lack of leadership is, 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 is very clear. But uh, it's not necessarily so. I mean, we could have leaders in the, in the world uh, again. We have in the past. So we, we are not going to come to the future. We will. And uh, we have, by the time the leaders come, we have to have somebody prepared to move with that. <laughs> if the leader comes and we are all disappointed and, and uh, we don't want to do anything, we have to keep, it, to keep somebody prepared to, to follow. Well, thank you very much. Let me, let me, let me finish with you. I, mean, uh, I want to say something that, uh, imagine that Jim is not here <laughs> for a moment. I, mean, I, I met Jim a long time back, long time back. He was the National Security, the Deputy National Security Advisor of President Clinton, which is not a minor thing. And we, we have a very, very deep friendship. And I want to tell you that you have listened, not an ordinary American speaking, a very sophisticated American speaking. And what he has said is description of what he sees. It doesn't mean that he likes that at all. I mean, he has been fighting for the opposite, but I mean, he has the, the, the frankness to, 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 to speak, uh, describe his country in honesty, because he could have been telling tell us lies, tell the truth, what the Americans think. And um, I still hope that he will have, he has still has possibilities uh, to be more important in, in politics than he has been. And, um, but uh, it's very good very good that we have this type of conversations. And I think we, have, we should have more. And like people, if we don't talk, if we don't listen, it's very difficult the thing to change. And I want to thank you. Just, uh, we have been two days with us, and we have learned a lot. And I think we come out uh, understanding better in the world and having the possibility of being better people. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Isade, inspiring futures. Mm-hmm.